Welcome to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast, episode 25. I'm Joel Payne from Resound Worship. And I'm Isaac Wardell. And this is an interview special. So today I'm delighted to welcome to our show Isaac Wardell, who is in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's right, isn't it? That's correct. It's lovely to have you with us. Do you know, I was thinking as I, as I was looking at where you were based, that if I had to invent a town in Virginia and go, come up with a name, I think Charlottesville is the, the name I would invent. It's, it sounds such a wonderfully sort of typical Virginia town. Is that what it is? Is that what it's like there? Yeah, that's not a bad description. Uh, you know, this might seem a little funny to your UK listeners, but Charlottesville is considered a, uh, a very historic town in uh, the United States yeah. of America. It's a colonial town. It's about 300 years old, and it was the home to Thomas Jefferson, a lot of our founding fathers. So as you walk around downtown Charlottesville, it's all these beautiful old colonial buildings from the 18th century. Uh, so yes, it's very... Uh, it's a very quaint town. That sounds lovely. And you're you're part of a church there. You're a, um, a music director, music pastor, something along those lines. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I split my time here. Uh, I work full-time for a uh, Presbyterian church called Trinity that's uh, here in Charlottesville, Virginia. And then I also direct a small organization called Bifrost Arts, putting out worship resources for other churches. Brilliant. And you're a... Um, you're a songwriter yourself. This is a, a songwriting podcast. And so um, I suppose the first thing we love to just could kind of find out is a little bit about your journey into songwriting and into writing songs for worship specifically. Is that something you've done from a, a young age? Is it something you grew into? What, how do you describe that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I started playing music uh, as like a performer all the way back in high school. Um, I had already had something of a musical background before then with the marching band and singing in choirs and all that kind of thing. And I got an acoustic guitar for my birthday when I was 13 years old and pretty much started writing original songs out of the gates uh, at that point. Um, for the most part, those first songs I wrote were some combination of just songs about girls that I w had yeah. crushes on, <laughs> and also some uh, Christian devotional songs, that is to say, worship-oriented songs that were not necessarily written for a congregation to sing, but just yeah. my own songs about uh, being a Christian. And then uh, I would say it was a whole 10 years later uh, in college and just after college, after having studied hymnody and gotten a little bit more of a vision for the difference between congregational song and devotional song mm. that I sat down and began to intentionally uh, start writing hymns. And when that process for me, I guess I've now been pretty seriously writing congregational songs and hymns for about 15 years, uh, beginning just out of after college up to now. I'm 37 years old. And you mentioned um, at the beginning that you mentioned Bifrost Arts. I looked this up because obviously I looked up the word um, and what it means and where it came from. And also it, it told me that I should pronounce it beef roast. But you, but you say, you say, oh, <laughs> it roast is Bifrost beef. arts. Bifrost. Yeah. Bifrost. I, I believe the, the original uh, Norwegian word yeah. in, in the dialect, you would say Bifrost, but Be we just say Bifrost. Or something. Yeah. And it's actually from, it's like from a Thor comic or something, isn't it? It's the, it's the bridge, is that the right? The bridge between, I mean, I'm not saying you got it from a Thor comic, but it, 
it's a bridge between earth and heaven or, or something like that. That's right. Well, to be fair, it does predate the comic by does several millennia. <laughs> I think it it's, probably does. It's, it is a Norse mythological term. Uh, the term Bifrost does indeed refer to the bridge that connects the heavens and the earth in the Norwegian mythology. And when we were first getting started, we liked that imagery, uh, that imagery of bridge building. Yeah. In particular, when it comes to um, when it comes to the way that churches see aesthetics and songs and beauty and the whole worship experience, one thing that we identified, at least here in North America, I don't know the extent to which this is true in the UK, but it seemed clear to us that in many uh, in many situations that church music, church songs, uh, contemporary Christian music, rather than being a place of invitation and a place of welcome and a place of bridge building to the community, um, in many cases, our music and our sort of creative practices and our aesthetics can actually be a barrier to our neighbors, actually Mm. be a barrier to our communities, that people uh, come into our churches with all kinds of pains and sorrows and lamentations And they walk into the church doors, and depending on what kind of a church you walk into, you might walk into a church somewhere and find uh, that the people seem a little um, irrationally happy and upbeat, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that the song lyrics don't reflect the full range of human emotion that we find in the Psalms. And uh, so all this to say about the word Bifrost, some of the original thoughts we had, uh, you know, eight years ago when we were getting started was... Wouldn't it be great to give churches more of a creative imagination for the kind of depth and breadth of songs and, um, and creative experience that we might actually offer as a bridge to our communities? Mm. So how did you go about um, following that up? You obviously had this, this plan to do something different. Yeah. Um, I don't know that we had a plan to do something different. I think I would put it more like, we had been, I had personally been doing something a little different for about 10 years at that time and sat down to start recording that. And the short version of that story is, while I was very involved in contemporary Christian music when I was in high school, this is back in the 90s, um, at the time that I enrolled in school and started studying classical music and singing in choirs and all that kind of thing, at the time I enrolled in school in the late 90s, I pretty much walked away from the contemporary Christian music establishment. You know, that thing that I sometimes call the, uh, the worship industrial complex. You know, I sort of walked away from that thing, uh, got very deeply involved in studying hymnody. Um, you know, as part of my musical education, I had to wake up each morning, Monday to Friday, and take notes listening to Bach cantatas and all that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> And then shortly after graduating college, began working at a small church plant in a rural part of the American South. Um, And this is all before, this is all before the internet was changing everything about the way that we listen to music and experience media and all that kind of thing. And so uh, over the course of my first 10 years of working as a worship director, I was always looking for how um, to do music in a way that was contextual to the congregation. Yeah. So this first church where I worked was very rural, and we had people that you know played banjos and upright basses and came from sort of a different 
kind of musical uh, aesthetic tradition. And so we were doing worship music that seemed appropriate for that context and that was able to summon out the gifts of our parishioners. But then a few years later, uh, I ended up in New York City working at a different church with completely different sort of a cultural context and likewise a completely different sort of aesthetic approach to worship. But what I want to highlight about those two experiences was that in both of those cases, this is pretty much, this is pretty much my 20s, like over, the, over yeah. those 10 years, that in both of those cases, we were not, um, we were not just looking to Nashville, Tennessee, or Los Angeles, California, or any of the places that are churning out um, the most popular sort of contemporary Christian music to tell us how to think about worship and how to write songs. Yeah. But instead, we're sort of basing our principle, basing our our uh, song choices in um, some historic practices of hymnody but then writing new songs that we felt like were contextual to our particular moment in time and to our particular place. And so uh, that's all sort of a long answer to your, uh, to your observation about us setting out to do something different. Yeah. I don't know that we were setting out to do something different in recording the first Bifrost record, but I would say that I had spent about the last 10 years in my career and in my um, vocation as a church musician, setting out to do something different in the way that I approached congregational singing. Mm. And I think for our British listeners, certainly, I think that polarization, that there is a polarization in our churches where you tend to be a traditional hymn singing church or you tend to be a contemporary Christian music kind of, you know, and it's Bethel and Hillsong and Chris Tomlin. So, and, and, and not a lot in between. And if there is something in between, then really it's just a sort of a fusion of those things. My, my yeah, that, obs- that's a great observation. Yeah. yeah. What my observation of what you have been doing with Bifrost, and and clearly in your sort of wider ministry, is not necessarily is in some ways just departing from that spectrum, and 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 kind of going in your own direction. So you're kind of drawing on. I can see particularly drawing on the the hymnody and the traditional, but actually not just making it a, a sort of a compromise between the two. But actually, br- coming up with your own spectrum, heading in a different direction, um, and that's where I see perhaps the kind of the doing something different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that this is not exactly the focus of the the podcast, but uh, I do think it's important just to talk about um, ecclesiology a little bit and what it means to have healthy worshiping congregations. And I think that um, I think that that motion that you've seen in the last fifty years, certainly in evangelical churches of polarizing congregations uh, based on worship style has had several really disastrous disastrous effects in our churches. Uh, One, it has pulled a lot of the wisdom and um, those uh, who are older, those who have all kinds of things to pass down to younger Christians, it has pulled those people out of younger, vibrant evangelical churches because we've made these aesthetic choices to say Mm -hmm. we're going to do music that's loud. We're going to do services that are explicitly catering to a very young audience. We're not going to do anything to make our parents, let alone our grandparents or our great-grandparents, feel welcome in this space. Mm. We're not going to offer hearing uh, hearing aids for people. We're not going to do anything to make our young spaces hospitable to the old. And then likewise, by pulling out so many young people out of these more traditional churches, 
it's meant that those churches have less of a pulse on what's going on uh, and all of the sort of energy and the vibrancy and the cultural change that young believers bring to a congregation. And so uh, I would actually suggest that the only people that have benefited from that kind of polarization is Sony Music and Warner Brothers with their ability to sell more music by uh, breaking people up into really distinct demographics. But I think it's hurt our churches and it's hurt our cities because of that. And you focused on... You talked already about congregational singing um, and and the importance of that and that what you write is is very much geared towards that. And there's a sense of a... Um, uh, there can be a conflict there between performance and involvement of people. How do you... I suppose, how what checks do you have as you approach what you do in order to make sure that what you're producing is congregational? Um, I appreciate that question. I, I want to rewind just a little bit yeah, because I feel like there are a lot of assumptions in that question. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that every meaningful movement in worship for the last 2,000 years, certainly, has had at its center congregational participation and congregational singing. Uh, I think that that is true of the contemporary Christian movement of the 1970s. I think when you listen to the music, to early vineyard music, when you listen to the music of Keith Green, uh, when you listen um, to the music of Michael Card, of James Ward, of these kinds of figures, it was absolutely the goal in the early days of that movement to write very singable kinds of congregational songs. You know, these choruses like, there is a redeemer, um, yeah. create in me a clean heart even the really simple scripture songs of the 1970s and 1980s. I think we see it in the black gospel uh, movement of the early 20th century. We see it in the Taizé movement of the middle of the 20th century. And then going back from there, we see it in the, in the hymnody movements in the 18th century uh, with folks like Isaac Watts, um, in the 19th century with folks like Fanny Crosby. And now we're seeing it at the dawn of the 21st century in the global south with the emergence of this amazing hymnody coming out of uh, Africa and coming out of places in South America. And while the aesthetic particularities of each of those congregation, of each of those worship movements um, are very distinct, and those particular movements have not produced really similar kinds of songs, the great similarity has always been that they have evoked from the people uh, a deep and a rich congregational participa- participation. Mm. And I think that um, while there have been other kinds of worship movements that are a little bit more based on performance, and they have also had their own kind of lasting effects on churches, that uh, movements that are about performance um, ultimately fail to actually enrich the congregations that participate in them, right? And they don't have that sort of a, if it's based on the people up front performing it and the skill of the performers, mm. well, those songs and, uh, and those, kinds of, uh, those kinds of experiences aren't actually going to pass down to the next generation, right? Because it's always going to be about the person that's performing it. So all that's to say that, you know, in terms of this question, like what checks do you have in place to make sure it's not performing? Mm. I mean, I think that... Um, I think we're starting from a totally different place. Um, I think that the problem, the problem as I see it with worship music that ends up being really performance oriented in nature uh, has more to do with the origin of the music than it does to do with the song itself. And I'll, I'll tell you two ways that I think that's true. And then I'll tell you something about what our creative process is like. First, um, I think that when you have worship leaders whose only paradigm for what worship leading is, is the concert hall. Hmm. If your only paradigm for leading worship is having attended concerts or having attended worship services that look like concerts, 
that it's very difficult to have an imagination that's any bigger than that. And so when you're writing songs, what you're going to think to yourself is, I want to write songs that showcase my sort of where my voice sounds good. Uh, you're going to write songs um, that perform well. You're going to write songs, um, you're going to write songs that uh, are um, really geared well to the context of like a rock and roll band that sort of play well in that context. And um, it shouldn't surprise us that what emerges out of that kind of concert hall paradigm in the case of worship songs are not necessarily songs that are very congregationally friendly to sing. It doesn't mean anybody set out to do the wrong thing. It just means that if you're creatively starting at that point, then I think, um, I think it's highly likely that you're not going to accidentally end up with really congregationally friendly songs. Um, the second thing I want to observe, and this actually, this is an observation that doesn't come from me, but from a philosopher uh, I admire greatly named Nicholas Waltersdorf. And Waltersdorf is, uh, is a, um, an older gentleman, a believer uh, in his 80s, um, very respected philosopher in his own right. Mm. And he's written a lot, not only on philosophy of religion, but also on philosophy of art. And he has uh, this amazing um, experience that he recounts of visiting a megachurch for the first time when he was in his late 70s, right? So when this man, a very thoughtful Christian, visited a megachurch for the very first time, he was in his 70s and he had this observation about it. What he observed was that um, from everything from the shape of the room, there was sort of a stadium seating kind of a thing, to the size of the stage, to the decisions to sort of light the stage brightly and then have the uh, lights in the auditorium brought down, mm. to having an elevated stage with no stairs to reach up, to having the music uh, projected out of a PA system, uh, to having performers up on stage, uh, very groomed in a certain kind of uh, in a certain kind of cultural aesthetic way, uh, to tell a particular story. That Dr. Waltersdorf's observation was that the only way he could interpret this phenomenon was that it was the medieval Roman Catholic vision of worship fully realized. That is to say, the thing that the reformers were so critical of in medieval Roman Catholicism was this notion that worship is not actually the work of the people, yeah. right? Like some of, your, some of your listeners will be familiar with this word liturgy, right? Like yeah. liturgy literally just means the work of the people. That in medieval Roman Catholicism, worship was not seen as the thing that the people do, but worship was seen as the thing that the people come and watch the priests do, right? Mm. The priests are the one worshiping, and your worship is achieved by watching them, by some sort of mystical participation in what they're doing. And that Waltersdorf's observation, which I think is so prescient for the 21st century, is that as he walked into that megachurch, and as he saw the expertise of the highly qualified worship leaders up front, and as he saw the stadium seating and the black lights in the congregation and the bright lights on the stage and no visible stairs with which one would ascend to the stage <laughs> yeah. to participate. Because clearly that's not we part of this that. experience. Yeah. That what Waltersdorf's observation was, I think is very haunting. And that is that the story we are telling people as they walk in is we are telling people the story that worship is the work of the experts. Worship is the work of the people with beautiful voices. Worship is the work of the beautiful people with the yeah. beautiful voices, with the beautiful clothes and the beautiful hair. And that the way that you experience worship is to close your eyes, is to let their worship wash over you, and that your worship experience is achieved through them, just as in that sort of medieval Roman Catholic imagination. Now, I don't say that 
to be highly critical of Roman Catholicism. I actually say that <laughs> just because I think it's important for us to name what it is that's going on. And so you asked me the question, what checks do we have in place yeah. to make sure that our worship is not performance-oriented but congregationally oriented? And so I guess now having talked for seven minutes about it, I guess what my answer to that question would be is I think we're starting from a different place. You know, I work, um, I work in, a, in a congregation that's highly multi-generational. Um, we have people here my kid's age. We have people here my age. We have people here my parents' age and people my grandparents' age. And uh, that certainly has its inconveniences. Yeah. It, is not without, it is not without its complexities. It is not without its um, pains, right? When we're having conversations about values and civic life and politics yeah. and all this kind of stuff. But I will say that what it means is that at the very start of writing a song, I am writing a song that I think my five-year-old will be able to sing and that I think that our 95-year-old congregational members are going to be able to sing. And I think when that's your starting point, it's unusual that you're going to end up accidentally with a Christina Aguilera song yeah. or wherever the appropriate, whatever the appropriate, whatever the appropriate culture references in 2016. We've been um, running a little songwriting project. We call it the 12 Song Challenge. We've had a, about 100 songwriters from around the world taking part. Just We've been challenging a song a month and we've been doing it with different themes and different approaches and things, just trying to develop a discipline and a style. And one of the, one of the months we particularly talked about songs of community and we asked people to imagine as they wrote their song in their mind's eye, picture every person in the room in their church, the guy at the back who never joins in, the person at the front who always jumps around and everything in between. Picture them, are they joining it? As you write your song, are they singing it? Are they joining in with it? And I, I see a similar sort of thing that you're describing there. You're, you're writing for real people rather than writing for a song's sake or for an imagined um even aspirational scenario, I suppose. You're writing for real people, and, and that makes a huge difference to how you write. Yeah, that's exactly right, Joel. And, and also, just by way of a clarification, I also continue from time to time to write what I call Christian devotional songs. That is to say, a song that's about what the Lord has done for me, a song of celebration or a song of repentance or a song of lamentation. That is not particularly useful for congregations. And that is absolutely fine. <laughs> I think that there's also a place in worship, even a place in corporate worship for personal Christian devotional songs, sort of in the same way that there is a place in worship for testimony, right? Like here's a testimony of what God has done for me and it's in the form of a poem or it's in the form of a song or whatever it's in the form of. I think that the problem we get into is when we no longer know what it is to write congregational songs. Yeah. You know? And so I think having that distinction is really useful because, um, you know, for example, at my church, we're one of these churches where, you know, every couple of weeks we'll have a slot in the service where maybe there's, you know, a special music moment or an offertory moment. And I intentionally choose many times to put songs into that slot that might not be best experienced in a congregational setting, but better experienced as a listener. And there's absolutely a place for that. But, um, but I think that when we look around at our congregations and if we kind of, if the PA system kicks off, you know, if you lose power in the middle of the service and everything goes silent because the only singing that's really happening is coming through the microphones, I think that we have a, a greater problem. How long will you turn your face? 
at one point about imagination um and it, it strikes me that with what you're doing um you've been in various situations using your imagination beyond necessarily some of the standard forms or standard patterns or standard approaches that's, that's more of that kind of talking about doing something different but i think quite often for people it's a struggle they're, they're perhaps in a situation where all they've ever seen in church is a particular style or a particular way and in order to write something and lead something different, they've got to, they've got to use their imaginations, and yet it can be difficult to do that. How, how do you think we can, perhaps even as songwriters, how, we can, how can we imagine a different approach or a different style beyond what we're so, what's got a, what's so ingrained in us? Yeah. Uh, wow, that's like three questions in there, I feel like. Um, I do. I apologize. I do that sometimes. Oh, that's fu- you that's pick fine. your favorite I- one. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, let me give two answers. Um, the first answer, and you have to forgive me if it sounds like I'm being editorial of the questions, but I, I feel like there's a lot of assumptions that go into the questions. So the first word that really jumped out at me of that question was standard, of how do you get out of, uh, out of a standard way of songwriting? And I think that that's an amazing word because, you know, of course, the word itself, what it reflects is the idea that there exists a standard, right? Like, you know, like we, some, in some countries use the metric system as a standard for measurement that we, uh, the idea of there being a standard, the idea of there being a, uh, a watermark for this is the basic way to do songwriting. Mm. And I think that to start, um, to start right there at that word standard seems like a great place to start. Um, I was at a, uh, I was at an event a couple years ago with actually an employee from CCLI. Uh, for those of your listeners that aren't familiar with it, CCLI stands for Christian Copyright Licensing. Uh, what is the I? <laughs> International. I can't remember. International. International. That's yeah. what it is. And CCLI is the main um, sort of infrastructure and mechanism with which most contemporary churches are able to license the popular music of the day. And so there's this phrase, you know, CCLI Top 10 or CCLI Top 25 is sort of a way a lot of churches get their music. They're doing the most popular songs with CCLI. Yeah. But I was talking to this person, uh, an employee from CCLI, and she made a really fascinating observation to me where she said, you know, we absolutely are the dominant um, sort of licensing house uh, in the world for licensing new contemporary praise and worship music. At the same time, songs covered by ccli the songs that we license actually only account for about six percent of the songs being sung by christians in the world on any given week how interesting six percent yeah so the largest the largest licensing the largest licensing clearinghouse in the world only accounts for about six percent of the songs sung by christians on a sunday morning around the world and so i just want you to think for a moment about that in light of that word standard right because uh because what you're describing to me, or what you're asking me is, how do the people who have only ever experienced, maybe in their entire lives, being a part of a congregation in that five or 6% that only sings CCLI songs, how does that person think or dream or imagine outside of that experience, right? So I guess the first answer to the question I wanna say is, 
I think when it comes to standard, um, we can kind of throw that word around sometimes. Um, and I think it's important for us to name that when we say standard, what we often mean is standard to our particular experience. Yeah. Right? So or, or standard to that person's experience, whatever yeah, that's, that person yeah, sorry, might that's be. What I mean. yeah. yeah, standard to a particular person's experience. Yeah. And so, uh, so I don't, I wouldn't want to answer that question in such a way as to imply that what comes out on Christian radio in 2016 actually is some sort of a universal standard for what worship music is. It might be a standard for the particular people in that particular corner of God's church. You know what I mean? But the second thing I'd say about it, and this kind of jumps right out of that part about standard, is that I think uh, it has that ability to imagine has everything to do with hearing different kinds of people's stories. You know, it is very, very easy for us, certainly in the church, to get, um, to get a little immunized um, to, uh, to other people's stories by just hearing our own stories over and over again in an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of hits on what I said earlier about the generations. But if you go to a church where um, everybody else uh, is about your age and everybody else kind of dresses like you and everybody else kind of listens to the same sort of music that you do, and everybody else votes the same way that you do, and everybody else uh, listens to the same podcast that you do. Yeah, uh, I think that your ability to um, your ability to uh, to see the world um, outside of your own experience it just gets diminished, right? It just gets diminished because we're not being enriched by those different kinds of stories. And so I think that um, I think when it comes to this question of imagination, I think that the sort of starting place for imagination is in stories, and, uh, and it's about expanding the stories that we're hearing. I think that um, for worship leaders and for really all Christians to have more opportunities to worship, not just with people in other countries, although that's an amazing experience if you've mm. ever had it, but even to worship with other Christians in a house of worship a hundred yards away from your own church. You know? yeah. I mean, I would be willing to bet even in the UK, where maybe there's not quite as high of weekly church attendance, yeah, um, I'd be willing to bet that within 500 yards of your church, there are Christians worshiping in a way that is completely different. And I think that when we think about this word standard, when we think about what it is to expand the palettes of our imagination, I think for us to start with recognizing that God's church is so much bigger than the six percent of the people, the six percent of the Christians. Yeah, on the planet that are using this one whole sort of um, this one whole sort of standard to uh, to write music with. So, do you think that the fact that the radio stations it's certainly from it's easy to perceive they're all playing the same kind of thing or the same style? Maybe that's that's as much um, a question of just only listening to the stuff you're used to or only only fitting in with your own culture or whatever it might be. It seems a little strange to me, and, and I, I feel. <laughs> I'm starting to feel a little insecure here. I, I, I don't think of myself as being a, a doom and gloom worship yeah, apocalypse yeah. person. I think it, we might have a different conversation where I was a lot more upbeat and, uh, and imaginative. I feel like we're hitting on a particular subject that I have some strong some yeah, strident yeah. opinions about. But I guess if you're asking my opinion on that question, it's that I don't really know that I would recommend that anybody that's leading worship for a particular group of people, uh, for a particular congregation in a real time, in a real place, get their ideas or their songs that they're going to lead from the radio. That seems anathema to me. I mean, I would say to start by looking around at the people in your congregation and think about what is it that these people need? Um, yeah. You know, I have a buddy, I have a buddy that I'll brag on, a guy named Paul Zock who works at a non-denominational church here in town. 
And he's, he had about 300 people at his church. And uh, he started a practice where he just started inviting people. He said, hey, listen, I would love to come over to your house sometime and write a worship song with you. I want you to tell me about what's going on in your life. I want you to tell right, me about yeah. what your experience with Jesus is and let's write a worship song together. And sometimes the end result of that is just as simple as, hey, the two of them got to spend some time together. He hears their story. They have a fun little experience and they you know, share a sandwich. But every once in a while, they're actually gonna end up with a real artifact at the end of that. That's really a beautiful song that then they not only sing in worship, so it fills a worship song slot, but also that particular person has a very unique, very special experience with that song in worship. Mm. And the entire congregation has a unique experience with that song because everyone knows this song actually came from the real experiences of a particular individual in that room. And so I think that's just one little practice, but I could give you 10 other practices like that, that when you put them all together, yeah. what you end up with is a different kind of way of approaching church songs and musical selection. For the lonely and forgotten For the weary and distressed For the refugee and orphan And for all who are oppressed For the stranger who is pleading While Let's just go back to Bifrost and um, this year Lamentations has been your your album, hasn't it? Is it true that you recorded it on about seven hundred dollars? Is that right? I've heard this. That that is true. It's kind <laughs> of does, a funny how phenomenon. Does that work? It's a funny phenomenon, you know. Um, our previous record, the one before Lamentations, which I'm also proud of and I think has some really nice moments. You know, that was a record that we spent about twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars on. Like, you know, it's okay. sort of a standard yeah. cost of making a making a record. And yet, uh, we made this next record, Lamentations, for a very small a, a very small fraction of that price, and it's been much more successful. So right. clearly, clearly, there's not a direct relationship between the amount of money you spend on uh, making a worship record and the uh, the amount of interest and enthusiasm in that project. Uh, the short answer to the question about how do we do it so cheaply. I made the record with one microphone uh, over the course of about 10 days uh, in my rehearsal space and in the sanctuary of my church. Right. And so we just, I just recorded it on my laptop with Pro Tools and didn't even spend the money to get it mixed. You're basically hearing uh, effectively an unmixed, un, uh, just, unrefined record, yeah. It's just your version. Because I think lots of the, the guys listening to this will be thinking, you know, how do I, they want to make recordings for various different reasons. Um, and it's amazing to hear that you've had that experience of spending 25000 and then spending a fraction of that. Yeah, and, you know, I'll be frank with you. It, that started because I had the songs. 
I wanted to record them and I didn't really have any money laying around to spend on it. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the, that was the motivation. But then once I started thinking about it, I started thinking, you know, if this is a song, if this is a record full of songs about lament, you know, if this is a record that's filled with songs about what it is to bring our sorrows to God, mm. how big of a production do I want this to be? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, do we need a brass section and a choir and, and these big elements to it? Or can't it just be sort of a small affair? And what listeners will find if they, if they listen to the record or if they do the songs, they're basically arranged for one or two voices and an acoustic guitar and a piano. That's kind of the, yeah. that's kind of the baseline on the songs. That's really nice. And actually that's, that, that's the musical lineup in an awful lot of churches. That's, that's the it? musical lineup in, a, in an awful lot of churches. So that was yeah. kind of the thought. Yeah. We did a, a little survey of, of our, the people who download and use our songs and just asked them about what instruments they have. And it was interesting to discover that um, the majority have a piano, maybe about right, 50, right. 60% have a guitar. And I was surprised by that. I thought it would be a lot higher. So it's just much more likely, whether we like it or not, that our songs are going to be led on piano um, than they are on guitar. And we thought a lot about that, actually, uh, recently. Yeah. And thought about, you know, how do we present songs then in a way where someone can say, oh, good, I could do that in my church because we've got those instruments and we can make that exactly, happen. Exactly, exactly. And not, and not only that, but it's even more likely to be the case that, as in the case of the Lamentations record, the songs themselves emerged from a church, right? So yeah. they emerged from a church with a piano and a guitar. I mean, I'm sitting here in my church's sanctuary right now, and I'm looking at my guitar, and I'm looking at this grand piano on yeah. stage. And, uh, and that's where the songs emerged from. And so it makes that much more sense that the, that the songs would be friendly toward that light up in other churches. Yeah. And do you have, um, have you got more projects up your sleeve in the pipeline, other things that you're planning to do? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I have many projects I'm planning to do. Uh, there was I a song and you... vocation contest, wasn't there recently? Yeah, that... look at you. You're, you're 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 up to date. So that is the next thing coming down to the pipeline. Okay, uh, coming down the pipeline. The next record uh, are worship songs uh, having to do with faith and vocation. That is to say, um, most of us would agree. We would assent to the idea that worship is not just something that we do one day a week, but that God actually calls us to be worshipers every day. Yeah, and uh, yet. It is often the case that um, maybe a very well-meaning pastor or worship leader might say something to the people walking into the door like, you know, welcome, we're glad that you're here, um, you know, we invite everyone to come just as you are, whatever your problems are, you know, maybe subtext, whatever crappy job you have or whatever, just leave that at the door yeah. and come in here to worship. And then likewise, we also make the mistake of saying, you know, now as we send you out of this place... You know, we know we're sending you out to a long week or whatever, but come back next week and get that worship tank kind of filled back up. Yeah. And, and I've had many conversations with people that use that kind of language, which I think we've kind of picked up in our churches, this idea that we sort of go to worship for refreshment and that in Sunday morning worship, our souls are refreshed and our worship tank is filled up. And then all week, our worship tank kind of gets emptied out till we come back to church. So we're making a worship record that is um, really explicitly songs um, that can be sung maybe to yourself at your job, kind of songs okay. about vocation, yeah. right? Sort of work songs, right? Uh, worship resources for churches to affirm vocation. That is to say, yeah. uh, songs that are about the work that we do and the kingdom of God. 
and then also uh, songs um, that give us particular language for how to pray for people in their vocations. You know, how do I pray for the nurses? How do I pray for the teachers? Well, here's a song uh, about uh, God being glorified and God comforting those who work in healthcare. So, uh, so I'm excited about it. That's a record that we'll be recording in a couple months and will be out by next fall. Yeah. So you've got this, the songs are written um, and you're they're getting most, off, yeah. They're mostly written, yeah. Uh, we, had a, we had the songwriting contest. That was great. We had a couple yeah. hundred entries for that. And then I've written a couple and a couple other uh, friends and contributors have written songs. So really a lot of what we're doing is trying to narrow it down to like the strongest 10 or 15 songs. Yeah. For Sounds great. It sounds like a really useful thing for the church. Um, I said to you just before we started recording that I've been binge listening to the um, to the various recordings that were really enjoying the style, the sound. Oh, thank you. I loved um, the one that's really got me at the moment is the live version of Psalm 126. Oh, yeah, and I'm, that's re- I'm intrigued with that one, how you've got such a wonderfully singing congregation, because it just seems like every voice in there is rich well, in you know, harmony or is it just so that that's not my congregation that's actually you mentioned our mutual friend bruce benedict oh, yeah. uh, bruce yeah. benedict works as the chaplain at a small uh, private college in holland michigan yeah and he invited me to come up to uh i was already in the area and he invited me to come and lead worship actually i'm remembering this wrong it was bruce's predecessor at that okay it was bruce's predecessor at that college invited me to come and um uh come by their chapel and he said, would you teach us a song? And so what actually happened about 30 seconds before that recording starts is I said, good morning, everybody. We're going to learn a new song. This is how it goes. And uh, so that's just their student body in that chapel singing. And they sang out really powerfully. Oh, that's really lovely. Well, Isaac, it's been, yeah. been a real pleasure to talk to you. I've got one final question. And this is the one we ask everybody that we interview. And um, it is this. If you can, you, you get got an opportunity to rewrite the, um, the historical annals of worship songwriting and, is, and then think of a song written by someone else where you think, oh, I wish I'd written that. If you, could pick a, if you could pick a song written by somebody else that you wish you had written, anything come to mind? Yeah, I have a couple of those, actually. Um, you know, in contemporary songwriting, you know, songs that have been written in my lifetime, yep. uh, I absolutely adore... Stewart's "How Deep the Father's Love for Us," okay. and that would be kind of yeah. the, that would be kind of the recent song that I would pick. Yeah. But if I was going back uh, through the historical annals, as you say, uh, gosh, there are uh, there's some amazing songs out there. But I think I would probably choose um, "It Is Well with My Soul." Okay. I think that uh, the combination of the singability of that song, of the beauty of the poetry of that song, and then in particular, the ability of um, of the writer to weave so seamlessly the lyrical themes yeah. and the melody together so that the melody really tells the story. I just think that that song is always a beautiful song for Sunday morning worship. It's always a beautiful song at a funeral. It is always a beautiful song at a wedding. Uh, it's a song that has tremendous emotional force um, because of the, tr- the sort of scriptural truths of it and the craftsmanship of the melody and the lyrics. Mm. Well, great choices. I tell you what, we'll be generous. We'll give you both of them when we're rewriting the great. history. You can you can have the pair of them. Isaac Wardell, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
sing together the nations. The nations will say, He has done great things. The nations will sing songs of joy. Restore us, O oh Lord. Seeds of your King.